This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. Good morning. Good to see you again. Good morning. How was your uh, How was your long weekend? Oh, you know the planting thing and the gardening and all that sort I of don't. stuff. I'm feeling I'm feeling every plant or every tree I pulled out and uh, every every piece of wood that I saw it up this weekend and. Uh, I'm feeling it today, so thank God for Advil. Well, it's the it's the greening of <laughs> Hamilton, I guess, and we're all trying to do our part for it. But it, it's it's kind of a, a passage, I guess, a rite of passage, you know, to get into the summer weather and the nice weather. And uh, finally, we're starting to get that now. And the power was on all weekend, so that was a good news th- hey, story for a, us, too. A, a bonus, yeah. for sure. Oh, we had yeah. some wicked stuff over the last couple well, of no, weeks. Well, uh, no major storm and uh, no big wind uh, knocked down any fences or trees. So we're, uh, you know, we can all enjoy the great weather. Anyway, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, and I, I, we, obviously, I know questions are going to come up here about the election and a couple of things that are happening. Uh, we are, of course, uh, children of the province uh, by statute, of course. You know, the city of Hamilton exists because of the city of Hamilton Act. But uh, the provincial election uh, is, is coming up on June 7th, Mr. Mayor. It's mm-hmm. a big one. Mm-hmm. I, I know that mayors traditionally don't like to, uh, to take a stand or endorse one or another. It has happened from time to time uh, with varying amounts of success. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, at the same time, you can't help but be involved in this because what they're talking about, what they're promising, what they're... Uh, stating opinions on right now is having an impact on what's going on here in Hamilton. And, mm-hmm. and obviously transit is one of those things. Uh, the the comment from uh, Andrea Horvath, of course, the NDP leader late last week uh, when she was here in town, uh, suggesting that uh, if Hamilton decided they didn't want to build LRT, they'd get the money anyway. You've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had a chance to talk to any of these candidates? Have they actually sat down with you as the, as the head of council here and talked about this? Uh, I've, I've not heard from, uh, we've reached out to all of them, and I've not heard uh, directly from them. I obviously have spoken to uh, to Andrea and uh, and Kathleen Wynn on numerous occasions, and they're, uh, they're, they've been consist- consistently supportive of LRT. So, uh, you know, when, uh, when Andrea <clears throat> raised that issue on Thursday, that certainly raised my eyebrow, and it was, uh, you know, relatively inconsistent for her to do that. She's always been supportive. Uh, when we had our mayors and MPPs sign on to the LRT pledge, uh, she was right there, front and center, saying uh, LRT all the way. And so to have her say, uh, you know, similar to what Mr. Ford said, was uh, was a shock and a surprise, and and she uh, corrected that in a hurry. So I'm going to go with. Uh, her, her, her formal position uh, prior to that and her position today, which is uh, LRT is front and center for her. Uh, she's, she's supportive of that. She has a position, which is LRT first and foremost for City of Hamilton. Yeah, she did walk it back after, I guess, a lot of the pushback that she got on that. But the fact that she said it in the first place, I think, was was kind of troubling. Because what I noticed on this program, and I'm certainly mm-hmm. uh, aware that uh, that a lot of other people noticed it, is it, is it just threw gasoline onto this fire, but making this a key issue again. Yeah, I mean, it uh, It certainly wasn't helpful. And, uh, you know, what? I mean, this whole notion that there's a billion dollars lying around that can be utilized for LRT is, uh, is a ridiculous one. Uh, we know that uh, this is a finance project, so financed over 30 years. And the financer is the actual the, the, the consortium that's going to develop this. So not the province of Ontario, but the consortium. And essentially, the province will then pay the uh, consortium back over the next 30 years. So there's no pool of money lying around. There's no billion dollars. So if <clears throat> any of the candidates want to go and borrow to provide Hamilton, uh, you know, some other alternative benefit, uh, that would be a giant leap uh, for that uh, that candidate to do. And, and you know, surely we know that uh, every other municipality, some 400 municipalities in the province would be asking for exactly the same thing. Give us money and uh, let us do with it what we will. With that in mind, though, 
why then are they making a promise like that? I mean, I, I understand that you know you're trying to attract votes. I, we all get that, mm-hmm. and you're going to say something that hopefully people are going to gravitate to and say, "Hey, okay, you've got my support." But but Andrea Horvath's been around for a while in politics. I mean, you know, she started a council the same year I did, nineteen ninety seven. Got elected right. to Hamilton Council. She's been the party leader now for the, this is her third election. She's got to know the process. Uh, Doug Ford, uh, okay, he's only been one term as a city councilor in Toronto. But I mean, for them to say th- there's a billion dollars here for you, that that was never the intention. No government comes around and gives a billion dollars to any city. Yet they say they persist in making that their their policy statement. Well, I mean, I think I think it's pandering for votes. Uh, you know, it sounds good uh, when it rolls off the tongue, but uh, it's not based on reality. Uh, you know, any candidate that does that is, uh, in my view, trying to uh, deceive the, uh, the the electorate out there in terms of believing something that uh, isn't real. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm I, I know it's election season. I know folks are uh, positioning for votes. I, I you know they have advisors. Uh, you know, and I think Andre has advisors as well that are looking after the kind of global interest in the province of Ontario. But uh, they need to remain consistent and be accurate with the information they share with the constituents out there. You know, today, uh, you know, LRT has been for 15 years the priority for the city of Hamilton going forward. Uh, council, uh, by, by council has voted unanimously to ask for it. And, uh, and, and, uni- and we're, was given the opportunity to get a fully funded, 100% capital cost uh, funded project for the city of Hamilton that no other municipality in the province uh, received. And uh, and uh, and council has consistently voted in favor of moving forward on this. So uh, I don't know why uh, anyone would want to kind of challenge that notion. Uh, if there's a, another council that comes together after October and makes a different decision, that's certainly possible. But uh, as it stands today, this is the uh, the direction that uh, I'm I'm moving forward on. This is the direction that council's moving forward on. And uh, that's the direction I think candidates that are uh, running for office should be advancing as well on behalf of the city of Hamilton. This is a great benefit. And, uh, you know, any candidate that suggests otherwise is, uh, is, is diluting the constituency out there. Uh, you've registered uh, for the municipal election, of course, uh, yep. as, you, as you promised everybody you would. That's not really news. But uh, I know that uh, as you made it official and signed all the documentation the other day, uh, you had mused at that time that you didn't think LRT was going to be the hot-button issue in the municipal election. Have you changed your opinion on that? No, I haven't. I mean, uh, from my perspective, uh, this is you know we're, this is a continuation of what councils already decided. And that, you know, there are many issues that councils decided that we uh, decide to kind of move forward on and uh, you know leave behind as another issue. Now, if others want to make it an issue, that's uh, that's up to them. But there are other issues that we need to talk about. We need to talk about poverty. Uh, poverty is a significant issue in the city of Hamilton. That's uh, that's one thing that we need to put a focus on, probably more than we ever have before, because it's in- increasing and growing, and uh, and unnecessary if we uh, take the right steps with our provincial and federal partners. Uh, there's economic development, uh, the kind of uh, job uh, creating opportunities that we need to bring to the city of Hamilton, so those folks that are <clears throat> that are living in poverty can have an opportunity to have a full time uh, full time job that uh, they can make a, a living out of. Uh, so there's so many other issues that we need to deal with, and uh, transit's just one of them. But a big one, nonetheless. It's a big one, uh, but uh, you know, it's not an overriding one. Uh, we we got the blast network that we have uh, defined as a council that uh, is the plan for the next ten years. LRT is one part of that plan. There's the traditional transit, which we're already investing in uh, this year to the tune of about $76 million in terms of the regular bus transit system. And uh, additional monies coming from the federal government on transit as well uh, soon uh, that we're going to have to participate in that really would help us fulfill the entire BLAST network. 
And then, how do we manage our growth? How do we continue to uh, build on this sense of confidence that we have in the city of Hamilton? How do we uh, continue to build on the momentum that we have that uh, sees uh, developers coming to the city of Hamilton and and looking for opportunities to uh, provide uh, additional assessment growth uh, here in the city of Hamilton and those future jobs that uh, continue to come? And how do we we find those future jobs? What kind of economic development regime do we need to have to, to make all of that happen? Track that for us, because there's, there's some mixed reports that have come out in the last little while. I mean, we, we, I think we're feeling pretty good about ourselves because of some of the things that have happened here. But uh, there are some other national uh, surveys that have been done recently that don't really paint Hamilton in a favorable uh, position. Are, are we still dealing with that stigma from years ago about a lunch bucket town? Well, I mean, in, in the minds of some people, certainly not uh, in the minds of most Hamiltonians today. I think, uh, you know, a lot of that comes from uh, out of Hamilton, and I, I, I don't hear that much anymore. When I, <clears throat> when I travel the country, I, I bump into people that are asking me, what's going on in Hamilton? There's a great buzz about the renaissance that's happening, the, uh, the great music scene that's here, the, the great restaurant uh, cultural scene, all of that happening in the city of Hamilton and, uh, you know, significant amount of uh, residential and commercial development uh, on an ongoing basis and, uh, and a low unemployment rate, uh, you know, at 4.2% uh, nationally. So the, the buzz I hear is what's going on in Hamilton? How can we replace that in our community? What's go- why is it such a, such a great renaissance that really has transformed the city of Hamilton from that former industrial time to, to town to the kind of new age a technological town that's marrying advanced manufacturing and technology together and creating that new innovation, innovative uh, dynamic that uh, is really being recognized uh, throughout uh, the country. Uh, Gary at bkelly900chml.com on email. Uh, when does the shovel hit the ground for the LRT project? It should be starting at the, uh, so the contracts uh, are, are deemed to be signed uh, sometime in mid-2019. And uh, shovels should go in, in the in the ground uh, late 2019. So that's that's the plan as it currently stands. I appreciate the email on that, Gary. But there are, uh, to use a phrase that has been bandied about during this debate over the last couple of years, what they call exit ramps uh, for council should they decide to do this. But, I mean, it's a game changer after the election, is it not, Mr. Mayor? Because a new council can overturn any council decision on LRT, on area rating, anything that you have decided on in this term can get tossed out by a new council. Certainly could, uh, but you know, the uh, the imperative now is that uh, money is being spent to uh, to put all of this in place. Uh, by the time the election rolls around, it'll be upwards of $100 million that's been expended on, on the authority of council saying, let's keep moving forward. Uh, Metrolinx is working uh, to to uh, acquire property, the, the, the property required to actually build this f- facility. They're looking to, uh, to secure the property to build a maintenance and uh, and uh, um, operational yard for the uh, for the LRT itself. So everything is in motion. And uh, you know what? If uh, council throws away a hundred million dollars of uh, effort and 15, 15 years of uh, planning, I think that'd be very unfortunate. And uh, you know, as one councillor said, only a fool would turn down a billion dollar transit system. Yeah, and that councillor that you're just referring to actually was opposed to the project, but likes the idea of the money. Uh, which is why this carrot that a couple of the uh, the leaders have dangled right now is, I, I think, rekindled this discussion. Maybe not the entire debate, but I, I get the sense that some of the people that are opposed to this are just kind of holding their powder and waiting to see what happens in October with the council and, and seeing what maybe this council is just going to change things. I mean, that, that really could be... Uh, a, a pivotal point for this city, given the fact that, uh, especially the, the 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 push that you've had on LRT since you've been mayor. 
Well, I mean, and I, I mean, a- anything is possible. I'm not uh, discounting anything, but the reality is that uh, there's lots to lose if uh, if council were to do that. Uh, not not to mention the you know the three four thousand jobs that come with this. That's why the building trades are so supportive of this. The the Leunas of this world and all of the uh, the trade organizations, the electricians, the carpenters, the uh, the plumbers, uh, they are all all on on board for this. Uh, there are some two hundred uh, corporate logos that have signed on to. Uh, the, uh, the the support for LRT. Uh, development is already happening as a result of the promise of LRT. So some of the downtown uh, you know, redevelopment buildings that are being done, uh, being built right now, are being done as, as a result of the uh, the promise of LRT coming down the road. So let we're already ask, seeing let, all let those ask, things I want to stop. Happening. I just want to ask you about that element of that, because that's, a, I think, a very interesting point that seems to be lost in the discussion uh, with those that are thinking that there's a possibility this project could get scrapped at some point, uh, for people that have invested and purchased land, not just said they're going to, but actually put cash on the table and said, that's where you're going to build this LRT line, so I'm in. I'm going I'm to buy those properties there. Mm-hmm. They've done that based on a council promise. If council turns their back on that and says we're not doing that anymore, are they leaving themselves open to legal action? Uh, there's a potential of that. There's a, you know, obviously the the potential is that uh, a lot of them will not fulfill the projects that they're uh, they're they're planning on doing or or are in the process of doing. So I think there's a big worry there that uh, that you know a lot of the development opportunities could be lost. Uh, they're important for the city of Hamilton. Uh, we look down the road at Kitchener Waterloo. They already have, without even the line running yet, built but not running, two billion dollars worth of new. Assessment uh, growth that's uh, come to the ki- city of Kitchener-Waterloo as, as a result of the LRT directly, that translates into some $20 million of additional taxes on a year-to-year basis. Uh, those are significant numbers. That's that's part of why we're doing this is to kind of grow the inner city, the lower city, uh, get that higher density and, and drive up that assessment growth that actually takes the pressure off of all taxpayers. I, I do have to mention one you know, un- unforeseen benefit or foreseen benefit is the $80 million underground service work that's going to be part of this project. Uh, that that also goes away if we uh, don't fulfill this uh, LRT project. That's $80 million that we have to take out of the local tax base, which is basically oversizing and replacing the sewer sewer pipes uh, under, under, under the entire length of the LRT that allows us to do more development and, and deal with climate change going forward. If we don't fulfill this project, then $80 million will have to come out of our local tax base don't pocket. It's it's a variation, I guess, on the same debate around the stadium. I, and I don't want to get into that again about location or anything like that, but uh, there were those that didn't want the city council to get involved in the stadium discussion at all, or the stadium debate, uh, which means that we would have had replaced Ivor Wynn at full cost. This cost us a third of what it ordinarily would. Well, you know, a better example is the is the uh, the link and the expressway. Uh, that that was, uh, you know, there was lots of opposition to that, uh, you know, back in the day. And the argument was, this will just cost us money and won't generate any additional tax revenue. And it'll just be, a, you know, a lost leader. It's just money, money spent with no benefit. Well, what happened, in fact, is quite the opposite. I think th- those, of, those of us that were for it said it's going to be a net benefit in terms of tax revenue. And so today, uh, it costs us $8 million to maintain and operate and finance that, that uh, roadway, and it generates $18 million worth of new taxes each and every year. So we're ahead of the game, and that's exactly what will happen with LRT. We're going to, uh, we're, yeah, we're going to have some operating dollars that we're going to have to expend, but we're also going to get significant amount of uh, new development that's going to generate more tax dollars and put it back into the tax coffers of the city of Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
The Mayor's Town Hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here in studio to take your questions, your comments. Uh, right off the bat on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly, uh, now that the lawsuit with the Tiger Cats is reportedly resolved, will the city be partnering for a Grey Cup bid with the Tiger Cats? Uh, yes. <clears throat> we uh, we uh, have always wanted to partner on uh, getting, uh, you know, Grey Cup and soccer happening in the city of Hamilton. Uh, the, the barrier has been the litigation process. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, we can get this resolved, and uh, the moment we do, we'll get on with uh, next steps, which is uh, finding a Grey Cup for Hamilton, which the Tiger Cats are very keen on. I think one of the promises that Bob Young made uh, when he when he uh, signed on to the stadium arrangement was uh, to get the Grey Cup here a couple of times in the next five to ten years, and uh, so that's a, that's certainly an objective. And and you know, having soccer in Hamilton uh, is uh, long overdue. Uh, you know, we need a professional soccer team. There's such a pent up demand. Every kid in the community is playing soccer, and uh, it's the beautiful game that uh, we need to be part of. Is this is this settled? I mean, we heard yesterday or last week that, that there was an agreement in principle, and I've called just about everybody I know, including your office. You know, mm-hmm. that I've been bugging you guys about mm-hmm. this, and everybody's tight lipped about this and says. And, and what I thought interesting though, in in the, the release that you did put out, suggested that there would be no details until you've figured out how to tell the people what's going on. Well, why is there a problem with that? Problem with what? With with details. Well, you know, it's litigation, and, and typically in litigation, uh, there's a, there's confidentiality that uh, that is uh, you know required on, on behalf of some of the partners. So we'll, we'll you know what I will we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, I'm, I remain hopeful that we can get this thing sorted out. So it's not a done uh, deal yet. Uh, I, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'm not going to change my tune on this one, Bill. It's uh, I remain hopeful. Uh, let's uh, stay tuned. There, no, uh, no, there are no been, lyrics to your story. <laughs> that's right, and there aren't going to be any lyrics. Uh, the story is that we've been working on getting this resolved for the better part of two years, and uh, I believe we're close. And uh, stay tuned, and we'll hopefully get uh, get this thing uh, put to bed, and then we can get on to next steps. When? When are we going to find out? Um, you know, we'll find out. We'll know when we'll know. We'll know when we'll know. Boy, it sounds like a politician now. Well, you know what? Well, but I, mind you, i, I got to tell you, in, in, I, the folks that, I, that I've talked to from the Thai Cats are giving me the same answer. I mean, nobody's saying anything about this now. Yeah, and, and you know what? But and, you and, understand and, and, there's, there's an angst in this community right now because, again, can you get this thing done? I have angst myself, and I'm, know, I'm sure the Tiger Cats do as well. We're all anxious to get this behind us, but, uh, you know, saying, uh, saying anything at this point... Uh, could potentially jeopardize whatever we've got going on. So I, I'm, uh, I'm going to stay hopeful. Uh, I expect that uh, before too long, we're going to know one way or the other. And, uh, and, and if, if and when we do, I'm, uh, I'm sure that the city of Hamilton is going to be kept whole. What are you waiting for then? Is, is, does somebody have to sign off on this? Is there somebody that hasn't given an answer yet? I know there's a lot of players here. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly it. So there's a lot of players and a lot of people that need to sign off, and there's a lot of discussion uh, you know, always around uh, you know, how, do you, how do you formally announce whatever you're going to announce. So there's a lot of, lot of hands, a lot of, lot of uh, chefs in this kitchen, and uh, that all needs to be sorted out. So once, we, uh, once we're able to do that, then we're able to release something. Uh, you, you were mentioning economic development uh, before the break there, and, and I mean, a Grey Cup uh, for the city of Hamilton is going to be a huge economic tool. I, now, I know the last time it was here was 96, but I mean, the league was almost dead in those days. It was a much different, it's a, a different situation. Absolutely. These guys, the, any Grey Cup, and I've been to the last number of them now, it's a huge moneymaker for the city. I mean, we're really missing out on something until this thing gets fixed. 
Yeah, no, no, no question about that. And uh, you know what? Uh, litigations are litigation is tough. Uh, we we didn't uh, you know ask for a substandard uh, stadium. Uh, we unfortunately got one, and uh, you know then the litigation ensued. Uh, you know, people know the whole backstory to this, and and so uh, you know, getting on to uh, you know some of the benefit of uh, having a professional football franchise in our city. Uh, is uh, is uh, is a uh, you know an opportunity that we all want to get to uh, sooner rather than later, and uh, having a great cup here, uh, you know all of the great cups have been uh, great memories for the city of Hamilton, and they're also great economic development and uh, growth opportunities. So we want to get into them, but we have uh, signed on to the Canadian Music Hall of. Uh, Country Music Awards coming this September and uh, actually staying for a couple of years. <clears throat> We're, uh, we, we've signed on with the uh, uh, Golf Canada, which is going to be bringing the uh, Canadian Open to uh, to the Hamilton Golf and Country Club uh, you know, for the next uh, little while. So uh, you know, some other great things happening in our city as well that we're uh, pursuing and have landed. And uh, you know, getting a, getting a great cup here is just one, one more that we need to On pursue. that point about the Canadian Open, uh, there have been some very successful tournaments, of course, at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. Uh, in the past, uh, but that's obviously a, a partnership that has to be established with the members out there. Mm-hmm. Do you have that agreement already? Yeah, I mean the members have signed on, or else we wouldn't even even be talking about it. So uh, they're uh, they're completely signed on to this, and uh, the uh, the money's been set aside. The agreement's uh, you know f- been finalized, as far as I know, with the uh, with Golf Canada, and uh, we're ready to ready to roll. What year? Um, you got me on this one this year and, uh, and, and there's a, I think a commitment to do another in the next five to 10, something of that order. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here for the Mayor's Town Hall. Your questions, your comments on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. John, thanks for holding on. How are you doing this morning? Good, yourself? Good. Go ahead for the mayor. I want to talk about waste management, seeing that there's enough garbage going around with three political parties. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> the gentleman, the mayor was in Gasol was in last week, looking for backing for the right to dump landfill sites. Are you aware of that? Sorry, I'm not. I'm not clear on what you're saying. The right to dump, to not to to, to or the right to decide whether or not we should have a landfill exactly. or not. Exactly. Right. Now here we are, still talking about landfill sites. Mm-hmm. There's only one left in Hamilton. Right. It'd be filled by 2034, mm-hmm. and it's coming up. Right. And we're putting more recyclable in the dumps. Mm-hmm. So where's the game plan? I've been watching this for years. The solutions. Instead of saying, we're not going to want this. If you look to Sweden and the, the, the countries over there, they, they their disposal plants are top-notch. Mm-hmm. Their thinking is reduce, reuse, and rethink. We got In this city, we got to start rethinking how we're going to get a waste management system. Right. Well, so, so. Besides <clears throat> dumping everything in the land. John, it's a great question, well, we and you're singing from the same song sheet I have, so I'm going to let you go, uh, and I'll let the mayor answer this on the radio. Thanks so much for the call today. And, and I'm of the same mind, John, that we need to, uh, we need to do a much more progressive job in terms of reducing and uh, reusing. And uh, and recycling, <clears throat> recycling gets to be a bit of a challenge when there isn't a market for the product that you're recycling. So we've had some of those challenges, not created by us, but created by the kind of general market out there. We need people to figure out ways of reusing the uh, the materials that we uh, re- recapture and recycle. What we also need to do, though, and I think this is very, uh, I'm very supportive of the direction that the province has taken. To uh, to make the, uh, you, the producer of the product be responsible for the end end of life of the product, and that would force them 
to look at producing their products with materials that are reusable and are recyclable so that we don't throw them into the, into the waste management system. Uh, I think that's going to be a very important direction for us to, uh, to take. Uh, anybody that's building a product today ought to be thinking about the end of life of that product and how that can be reused and retooled to, to create something else. Uh, if they don't do that, then they're doing a disservice to our community. To, to John's point, though, and, and this is a discussion and a debate that Hamilton Council has been having for a long time right now, what about alternative means? And, and the one that he's referring to from Scandinavia, and actually it's being used extensively in other parts of the world, is, is gasification. In other words, instead of recycling everything and instead of using landfills, you gasify. And it's not incineration. I mean, I know some of your counselors are still using that word, and that's old technology mm-hmm. that nobody's using. At least I hope they're not anymore anyway. But it's a very effective way of doing that. And, and of course, it's, it creates energy, so it's a win-win situation. Uh, there's been a couple of situations in the last number of years where councils had opportunities to pursue this, and they've decided not to. Yeah, and I think I think the the challenge is that as long as you have a landfill that you're uh, you know you're using and going to and has has life left in it, uh, you're probably going to maximize that utility before you get onto something else. Uh, I don't I don't support landfills going in the future. I think it's the worst possible scenario in terms of uh, dealing with our waste. Uh, throwing it into a hole and uh, letting it sit there for the next hundred years and oozing and everything that it does, I think, is a bad solution. Uh, the alternatives are things like gasification. It's been around forever. It's not new. Very common. Uh, very common in Europe, and they're uh, they're clean and they're they're actually in in neighborhoods. Uh, and so something like that w- is something that we need to get to when we get closer to the end of life of this landfill. Um, I, I know that's a controversial topic. I think many people uh, kind of put it into the in a center incineration mold. Uh, that is certainly not where it's at anymore. It well, can, because, it can well, be because done. anybody who remembers Swarua, right. East End, and your old ward, and they make that uh, they make that equation, you know, quite often, and I think that's unfortunate. It's it uh, you know, it, gasification sounds better than certainly incineration, but you're 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 actually going to what you should be doing is generating energy from your waste. That is really the ultimate solution that, that we need to employ, including reducing the amount of waste we create in the first place. Uh, that, that is maybe even a, a more important objective uh, on the short term, and then dealing whatever is left uh, in a more effective uh, energy-producing way is probably the, the best solution of, of all. But the critics of that system invariably will come back and say, well, we don't want, you know, you have to import garbage from other areas to feed the beast, in other words, to create that energy, uh, and we don't want garbage trucks of other people's garbage going through our city streets. Is that a fair characterization? No, I don't think so. And I think, uh, you know, we, we had, a, we had a, at one point an agreement with uh, Niagara to actually create a uh, energy from waste facility that, uh, unfortunately, when Niagara then decided to go to another landfill, because it was kind of put on the, on the, uh, on the back burner. Uh, you know, the, the whole notion of it being economically viable, obviously, has got to be important. Uh, if you're going to have a private sector agency or even the municipality of the city of Hamilton do anything like this, you know, the economic viability of it will be an important issue that they're going to have to consider. Uh, but having said that, uh, you know, generating, uh, you know, our, our dealing with our own waste is something that I think is, uh, is imperative for us as a municipality. Not shipping it off to some other municipality, not unlike what Toronto does, which is they, they don't deal with any of their waste. They ship it off to Michigan or wherever they put it, I think is irresponsible. And so we have to take responsibility on our own and at the same time look at the economic viability of doing that in the process. 
905-645-3221. Start 9900. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Dave, you're next on the program. Welcome to the show, Dave. Good morning. Just wanted to elaborate on the outside of view of Hamilton you touched on earlier. If I yeah, think. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talking to a prominent Burlington citizen on Friday, and I don't want to mention his name because you probably all have heard of him, but he, he feels that this time he's watched over the years Hamilton trying to take off, and he feels that the city has finally have, has the plane in the air. Mm-hmm. So let's hope we keep, keep it going because <laughs> we know that cities die without progress. So I say stay the course on what we're doing. And, uh, you know, when it comes to our team, my final word on that is if, if you build it, they will come. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Appreciate you know, your call. Not, not, so, so that's a, a sentiment, Dave, that I hear more often than not today. That we're on a we're on a kind of a, an up curve. Uh, we want to stay there. I think there there is a sense of confidence in the city of Hamilton now that uh, hasn't always existed. That we can do and we can be better than we were, and uh, and we are. In fact, there's so much good going on. Uh, great research at McMaster with the uh, the Fraunhofer Institute looking at new biomedical products uh, in the future. Uh, great innovation going on at Mohawk College with uh, City School and uh, City Lab that we've got going in behind uh, City Hall and the old uh, Hall of Fame building. Uh, lots of great innovation, lots of great energy, and lots of enthusiasm for, for where the city is going. And I think that uh, that is getting translated out to the broader community and beyond our borders. So, Dave, thank you for those comments. I I think you're, you you hit the nail right on the head. There's another element to this that uh, that I've noticed, and I think a lot of other folks have too, uh, that I think has been a contributing factor in this, and that's establishing partnerships. I mean, he, Dave just mentioned he was talking to a friend of his in Burlington. Uh, the relationship that you have created with Mayor Goldring in Burlington, those partnerships, uh, the, the Economic Summit is a shared economic enterprise now. Uh, you've done the same thing uh, from a, an economic standpoint, of course, uh, partnering with Waterloo and other communities, and Burlington and Toronto, for that matter. And it's it's shared. In other words, all boats rise with high tide. In other words, it, we, we used to compete with them. Now we're working with them, and everybody seems to benefit from that. Absolutely. And you know what? We've been recognized as a result of that by the Intelligent Communities Forum. I'm uh, heading off to London to see if we can capture the number one spot. We've been designated uh, top seven. And, and uh, the reason that we're designated by them is because we've taken technology and the digital capacity that we've had, and we've used that to, uh, to advance uh, you know, good, good thoughts and ideas. But more importantly is how do you collaborate with other institutions, whether it's other municipalities and or institutions within your own community. So the partnership that we have with the Community Foundation, with Mohawk, with McMaster, with uh, uh, Hamilton Health Sciences, uh, all of us working together to common goals is really the hallmark of how we transform our community. And that needs to continue. If we fail to continue that kind of uh, collaborative effort, then we're going to fail as a community. And uh, right now, we're not failing at all. We're succeeding on every level you can imagine. Try to squeeze in a few more before we have to finish off. Back to your phones on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Frank, you're next on the program. Welcome, Frank. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, Bill and uh, Mr. Mayor. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask on the uh, subject of recycling, uh, you know now that we are required to take, for example, bottle caps off of a bottle and segregate them separately to that of the plastic bottle Mm -hmm. or whatever, that's kind of like getting down to a micromanaging of right. little items. Has there any been any thought or, um, let's say, proposal to have these producers of these containers make the bottle caps the same material as the container? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges that uh, I think the province has dug into that, uh, again, make make the uh, producer of the product responsible for the end-of-life of product. 
the moment that happens, they're going to start thinking about uh, the recycling that they're going to be responsible for and how do they actually uh, reduce their cost and maintain uh, a product that uh, can be reused uh, over and over and over again rather than just disposed of uh, each and every time. So there's a, th- that whole push is all about making the producer of the product uh, responsible for the end of life of product, all products. And so that, that'll, that'll substantially change how uh, the, those producers produce and uh, will substantially change the requirement for municipalities to actually do the level of recycling and reclaiming and uh, reusing and wasting that we're currently having to do today. The, I guess it's really the federal government's jurisdiction uh, when we start talking about packaging and things of that nature. And I know they've been talking the talk for the longest time, but they, they could be playing a little more hardball with the, the manufacturers to try to do something about this, and they really haven't yet. They could they could do, and they should do. And uh, But, but uh, you know, the province is responsible for requiring the kind of uh, pro- product management that uh, that is going to really force producers in Ontario to make a different, uh, you know, equation in terms of how they produce things. So, you know, if you're producing a computer and you're using a plastic uh, material, you know, how can that plastic material be used for something else when that computer is no longer uh, needed? How can all of those components be separated out and reused and retooled? I think producers need to, and I think they are starting to think in those terms, but the moment that they're required to, uh, to, to, to look after the end of life of, of the product that they produce, they'll start thinking about that even more. I know we're just about out of time, but i got to get this email in. just came in. This is from uh, Sandra. Uh, will the city honor the Bulldogs if they're successful in the Memorial Cup tournament? Uh, we're honoring them right now. So, uh, you know, every game that's on, we're uh, lighting up the Hamilton sign in the Bulldogs' colors, yellow and white. And uh, we are looking at uh, you know, a significant game and how we're going to actually allow for a dog pound kind of scenario, maybe at City Hall or maybe at uh, the First Ontario Centre or the stadium, so that fans, local fans, can come together and watch the, uh, the significant game uh, together uh, to uh, cheer them on. So uh, game on tonight. Uh, they won last night, and uh, good on the Bulldogs. Go, go dogs, go! And tomorrow, uh, tonight, they're playing again, and uh, we'll keep the sign lit in their in their colors, and uh, we'll fi- we'll figure out a way for the next uh, important games to how we can come together and watch it collectively. Uh, win tonight, and I think that guarantees them a shot into the semifinals. So yep. we'll see what happens from there. You bet. Uh, all cheering for the dogs. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Great to see you again. Pleasure. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. We do this uh, every couple of weeks. Of course, the town hall here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, the jury for the Barton Jail Inquest has made 62 recommendations on how to transform that facility. Uh, there was some very troubling information that came out uh, through the course of this uh, hearing over the last number of days and weeks. Sarah Kane, CHML reporter, of course, was there. Uh, joins us here in studio. Good to have you here. Thanks for jumping in here today. Thanks for having me, Bill. This had to be troubling, and I, I know, you know we talked with folks like yourself, or and uh, you know when Alex Pearson was covering the Bosma trial for us, and, and you always do such an outstanding job, of course, of reporting things. But boy, this has got to wear on you too. You the, the, some of the stuff that came out of here is is beyond troubling. Yeah, it's six weeks of testimony in this case. Sometimes with the coroner's inquest, it'll be just about a, a week. But this was eight deaths that they were looking at, and within the detention center setting. So definitely some troubling, eye-opening evidence came forward uh, before the jury that had to make these recommendations. Now, the deaths obviously were the the, the catalyst. This is why they decided to call this. But, I mean, that seemed to be, and I don't mean to to belittle that aspect of it, I mean, because this this was terrible. You know, eight people lost their lives. 
But the, the thing that seemed to come out of here was the rapid use of, of illegal substances, illegal drugs in there. And the question I got is you were doing the reporting, more often than not, the people that were responding to your reports on social media, these are, these, this is a jail. How do they get this stuff in here? Yeah. And, and apparently it happens all the time. It does, yeah, from the evidence that we, we had heard and, and from correctional officers and uh, various people from the jail and health care. They had all weighed in on the different ways that they kind of have knowledge of how it may get in. At one point, uh, it was getting tossed over the wall, so they had to put netting up so that they could kind of catch things that were going to and fro. Uh, we've heard that, uh, you know, volunteers, people that come in uh, to even lawyers, someone suggested. I mean, different people that come into the jail and they're not screened on the way in. So there's there's different ways that they're getting this in. And in some instances, we're even hearing that, you know, there were inmates that were coming in for a short stint just to be that person to bring those drugs in. So that was a mule. That in other mule. words, they, they'd get yeah. arrested so they could bring their, their stash right. in and then finish their time and do... Uh, it's it's frightening, and and I guess and I know you mentioned this in a couple of the reports. As you mentioned, the authorities know they know this is happening, uh, yeah. and they even to extent know the methodology the methodology rather that's being used here, but they don't seem to be able to stop it. Yeah, they the, the one witness who had come forward, uh, Michael Ducheneau, he he's a sergeant at the jail and does a lot of the policy work, a lot of overseeing of different staff, and he had said that this is really just a chess game and that. Many of these inmates are just a step ahead, and no matter what technology they put in place, they now have an x-ray body scanner for a full body scanning that they didn't have back when these deaths happened. He said even with that, I mean, they're always looking at to find ways to get around that. And, of course, if they are hiding these drugs inside their body, they're not allowed to do cavity searches. So even if that comes to their attention, it's a matter of putting them in a dry cell where there's no running water and seeing if they can retrieve that package of drugs. I want to ask, get into the staffing issue, if you could, Sarah, because I know when I've talked to people that have worked there, and it's not just to do with this inquest, but over the last number of years, uh, invariably they talk about the, the pressure that's on staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an easy job, obviously, to work in a facility like that uh, because of the, the, the people that you're working with and the people that you're looking after. Uh, but they talk about staffing issues and numbers, and they say there's not enough staff, that, that management doesn't seem to understand. Did that come out at all during this inquest? Repeatedly. This was one of the biggest themes was staffing and resources, that there's many things we would like to do, but we don't have the means to do them. And certainly in different situations where there's in a lockdown or there's a labor disruption. I mean, those are all factors as well. One of the changes that actually kind of came out during the inquest that is also ensconced in these recommendations is that they have an institutional security team that would actually try and track drugs uh, within the jail in cells, specifically uh, definitely after an overdose was uh, one of the, the key points. But they said that they would be bringing those people from their already, the staff that they have, the complement of staff that they have. And they have a staffing issue. So, I mean, it's great that they're putting that forward, but that would take away from some of the rounds and the things that they already have to do. I mean, nursing was another one. Just in recent years, they got uh, 24-hour coverage with nurses. They didn't have overnight nurses before. And some of these overdoses were happening, obviously, throughout the night. So a big issue. And, and of course, the staff that are there are, are not equipped, nor should they be handling that. Yeah, and that was definitely another thing that that came up was uh, in the case of Marty Tycholes, he had come back from hospital after receiving naloxone for an overdose, 
got checked out at the hospital and then was sent back. And at that point, there there was no nursing staff overnight. So it was up to the correctional staff to try and gauge what the circumstances were, try to monitor him. And there was actually a period of 50 minutes where no monitoring happened at all. A nurse came in in the morning, uh, noticed that uh, his blood pressure, some of his vitals, everything was low, but that he was responsive and carried on. And then the next time that people checked in, unfortunately, that at that point, it, it was too late. Let's, let's talk about, the, 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 like you should say, 62 recommendations. We can't really cover all the ground here, that, uh, what, what came out of this whole thing. But at the same time, let's talk about those eight deaths and, and, this, and the investigations surrounding them. Uh, is, is it... Well, I, I was going to ask you about it, you know that relationship uh, with, with you know the narcotics that are available there and the deaths themselves. But I'll let you mm-hmm. explain that uh, how they actually ascertain exactly what happened and why it happened. In terms of how how this unfolded yeah, within the, the inquest, the, the eight so, deaths, which were really the the basis for this inquest. In the yeah, first place. I think that was one of one of the fears from counsel to the coroner, Karen Chase, said after the fact, which she didn't want these eight deaths to get lost in this inquest because it is so much information. So they did go case by case and then kind of look at some of uh, the themes. Now these deaths happened between 2012 and 2016, and like I'd mentioned, some things have changed since then in terms of having a little bit more staffing or some resources like the X-ray body scanner. But, I mean, there's still many, many gaps that came up that can be addressed now that came from those deaths. Each one was tied to drug toxicity. One was deemed a suicide, but they all had drugs was kind of... Readily available. Readily available. It was a factor in each each of their lives in the jail and ultimately their deaths. So that's kind of how this all came about was why is this happening and how can we stop it from happening again in the future? Is this unique to Hamilton? I mean, we don't hear about this, or maybe it's just that we don't hear about it. Maybe it does go on in other facilities. Talk about that, you know, relative to what's going on in other jurisdictions. Yeah, it's not my sense. We didn't delve into that too much in this inquest, uh, but it's not my sense that this is unique to Hamilton. I do think that it happens in different jurisdictions. Uh, This is kind of unique in that it is a detention center. You're getting all different types of people. It's a very, you know, transit, people moving in and out. It's a bit of even referred to as a revolving door for some people. So there is that access to drugs and things coming in, different people. So, I mean, that presents its own challenges. But I don't think that it is unique to uh, to Hamilton. And certainly another point that isn't unique to Hamilton is that it has become a bit of a microcosm for what's happening in the community in terms of the opioid crisis. So we're seeing that in terms of fentanyl and the toxicology reports coming up later in the in the years that were covered in this inquest. So 2015, 2016, that's when you start to see it on the reports of these men that uh, unfortunately had died from an overdose uh, within the detention center. One of the other issues, and it's not new to this inquest, but certainly I think it was underscored a number of times, uh, is overcrowding in, in not just this facility, but in facilities right across the province. Uh, this, as I recall, I can't tell you, I've never been inside the jail, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm told from people that work there as, as guards, uh, this is designed for maximum two people per cell. Uh, and in some cases, that's double the number that are in there. Yeah, certainly there's, uh, in the cases that we had seen, it was off, It was often that there were three people to a cell. Uh, different c- circumstances, whether it be a lockdown, I mean, they're, they're pushing people together. And they also have dormitory settings where people are just out kind of in a, in a com- common space. So, yeah, it's, it's packed. There's very little to do. We heard that there's not very much in the way of programming. Uh, much of that has been taken out throughout the years. They don't have any recreation staff. So the fresh air program, as they call it, is really just putting them outside so they can get fresh air. It's not access to gym equipment. It's not playing basketball. It's not 
doing any of those things. They do have AA and certain things that come in, but we've even heard that those programs and those, you know, things that are supposed to help with that rehabilitation process are often bumped because different people need different rooms and the space is so cramped, again, because of overcrowding. Okay, but with that staffing issue, whose responsibility is this? I mean, these people work for the province, if I understand. Yeah, I mean, so this, this is a minister of correctional issue. services. Yeah, this is definitely them recognizing what's needed within the facility. And I think that this inquest is definitely eye-opening for them in terms of perhaps seeing on the ground level what their staff are dealing with and doing the best that they can. But with this, the resources that are available, and sadly that doesn't seem to be enough. Now, I know some of the recommendations talked about uh, protocols that could be used and things that may have come to mind for us uh, who may even be unfamiliar with this? Like, hey, how come they don't have sniffer dogs? They do that at the, you know at the border. You know, mm-hmm. if they think there's something going on in a car, uh, apparently, the, I guess they don't disagree with that. They just don't have the, the people to do it, nor the dogs to do it. Yeah, at this point, it seems like they have dogs available that you can have on request to come in for searches. So they do they do happen, but it's something that is available to a great number of facilities. So they kind of do the circuit and go where they're needed. But in the recommendations here, there these this jury thinks that there should be a dedicated canine unit that works within the jail regularly to try and sniff out some of those drugs. And there's another recommendation actually that they look at some of the technology to that can actually sniff out different substances as well. When they do bring a dog in and is like I guess from let's let's talk about staffing once again. Uh, is it their dog? Do they, is it a police dog? Going, how do they use this? I mean, because obviously the the dogs that police are using in those sniffer things, they need them. I mean, they, yeah. in other words, you're stretching resources here. That seems to be a, a current theme here. Yeah, that's why in recent years the ministry actually did create their own canine team to go in. And I think they do, in some areas, still lean a little bit on police services and their canine unit, but they decided to take that on themselves because they did see the need. But but so in other words, the ministry provides a dog. That's right. And it might be in Hamilton one week, and it might be in Don Jail in Toronto the next week. You don't yeah. know from one to the next. They have different kind of regional divisions, and they kind of bounce around wherever they are needed. What about the the, the, the staffing issue, and, and and of course the population there? We talked about the overcrowding, and that's mm-hmm. been an ongoing theme. And and obviously, according to to what the jury said here, that's a contributing factor to some of the angst that's going on there. Uh, the other is, as you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Sarah, and you talked about this in a couple of your reports, uh, is is the, cum- the, the the people that are in there. I mean, uh, with that overcrowding, there's a lot of folks that just get shoved in there. And you might have somebody who's there for pot possession mm-hmm. uh, in the same job as somebody who's being accused of murder. Uh, and, and that's, you know, social scientists will tell us that's not a very good solution. And that causes an awful lot of pressure and angst in situations like that, which makes everybody's job more difficult. Uh, it just seems as if this was a, an, an accident waiting to happen, all this stuff seeming to come together. Yeah, there were evi- there was some evidence that came forward, too, that even after, you know, knowing that certain inmates may have had drugs or dealt with other people, that they were placed again together in the same cell. So that's inherently problematic, and it's something they need to address, and it's something the jury had a lot of questions about. Why can't you see who will be a fit and kind of try and work that out? Can't you look at a, at a record and say this person has a, a history of addictions, a history of opioid use, and you're putting them with this person who's also known for the X, Y, and Z or whatever the case may be and trying to make that decision. Or as a dealer. 
as a dealer. So I guess just because it is 500 people packed into a jail that some of those logistics and some of those considerations that they'd like to make kind of fall by the wayside. Okay. Now the judge has, I, I know, applauded the, the, the jury that put the work into this and come up with a 62 recommendations. Uh, and some of these, as I say, if you go over this list here, make all kinds of sense and you'd think are going to address some of the concerns. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news, as I understand it, is uh, this is all optional. It's all optional. So the ministry, the police, anyone who is addressed within these recommendations can do with it pretty much what they please. They can implement it. They cannot. They can change it. it they are recommendations. That it, That is what they are. But we have seen some changes happen throughout this inquest. Like I mentioned, the institutional yeah. security team. That unfolded during the inquest. Michael Ducheneau, the sergeant K-back, said over the weekend, uh, I was told that this is my first task after this inquest concludes. So he's now putting together this team. We've also heard about changes to the methadone program, which is within the jail for addictions and opioids. That's now changed as well. And Marty Tycola's case, uh, he had requested to be on the methadone program, struggling with addictions, and uh, he was denied because he didn't meet uh, policy standards at that time, which dictated that you had to be pregnant or about a month away from release, uh, or you were already prescribed it in the community before you came in. But that seems counterproductive. In other words, in that particular individual's case, they say, oh, you know what, you're just going to have to deal with your addiction while you're in here, but when it's time to go, maybe then we'll give you some assistance. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. In other words, it's almost as if they're simply resigning themselves to the fact that the flow of drugs is going to continue. That's it. And this is a person who two months before their death had requested, as evidence suggests, had requested, it's in the paperwork, to be on this program, but they denied him. So now they're looking at changes. It's already come down ministry-wide, but whether or not it'll be implemented, we've heard is, of course, yet another thing. But that makes you wonder, though, why go through this whole process? And with the best of intentions, if none of this stuff is going to be mandatory or binding, I mean, you know, everybody who's involved in this, all 62 recommendations, I know that, as you mentioned, some of them have already begun, and that started before the inquest. But for the rest of them, they can just say, thanks a lot for coming up, put that in the bottom drawer, and forget about it. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, the families, I think that's hard for the families, of course, of these eight men. They say that they'll be watching very closely. And uh, April Tycholes, who's Mother Marty I had spoken about, mm-hmm. said, you know, I'm not going to go away. That's what she said at the at the verdict. You know, I'm not going to go away if I don't see some of these changes that I've worked so hard to be here day in, day out and, and encourage this jury to make. A very troubling picture uh, that uh, that came out of this whole thing. Great reporting on your part, Sarah. Thanks, Thanks for being here today. Sarah Kane, CHML News, uh, with the, uh, the Barton Street Jail Inquest. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.